Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Good morning. How are we doing? I was thinking as you were singing, uh, what are we going to do when we get carpet in here and the room's not quite as live as it is right now? You're going to have to sing, you know, like you're singing today, but louder. It was good. It's good to sit back there and just listen. One of the things I feel convicted about as the pastor of this church is how many uh, people are a part of this congregation that you should know better. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's some remarkable individuals that do remarkable work, and uh, we're privileged to hear from one of those today. Uh, he's a part of our Pasadena family over there, and he's with us. If he's not speaking somewhere around the country, he's with us, and I shared over there. It's a little intimidating, honestly, to look out and see his face. Uh, he is officially the William K. Brim Chair of Worship Theology and the Arts and the Associate Dean for the Center of Advanced Theological Studies at Fuller Theological Seminary. So I, I wrote him and I said, I need to know exactly how to introduce you. And he wrote all of that out and then he said, or you can just say Cutter. <laughs> so would you help me welcome Dr. Cutter Calloway to come and show us now. Uh, am I on? Okay, good. Um, all right, so I'm not usually over here. Is there like, oh, there's the stand. See, it's all the secrets. All right, check that out. Um, thank you, Dave. Uh, good to see you all. I am Cutter, and uh, I'm glad that I intimidate Dave. Um, I, I can just go home now. Uh, happy camper. Um, yeah, all that stuff is true uh, about what I do, and I do research and writing and teaching and all that stuff in various realms. But what I'm really excited about and I want to share with you is uh, my most current project, which is the series of children's illustrated books that I write. Okay, um, there's a little picture here, and this is our main screen. I haven't been over here with all the construction. Um, can we throw up on here uh, this? Oh, one more slide. Uh, this is my most recent book called The Cactus and Armadillo, okay? So a theologian who's in charge of the Center for Advanced Theological Studies spends most of his time writing children's books. Um, and if you are maybe, a, uh, find yourself to be kind of like a prickly personality, and sometimes it's like, you know, I don't know if I can make friends. Maybe you kind of roll up in your shell and you're kind of introverted, you don't know how to make friends. This book is for you, okay? Um, it might also be good for your kids, I don't know. Uh, you can find this where all fine books are sold, shameless plug. Um, the real reason I'm, I'm bringing it up is because um, <clears throat> I write the stories and uh, sometimes I'll like storyboard them or whatever. But the actual illustrations are done by my older sister and, and younger brother, who are just ridiculously good artists, um, and it's fun to work with them. But as I say that, and you know, really promote their, uh, their expertise, their artistry, I will say it runs in the family, okay? Uh, and I know that. <laughs> I know that because um, uh, I often will do stuff with my kids, right? And we will play this game called the Three Crayon Challenge, right? And if you haven't played this, well, maybe they made it up, so maybe this doesn't exist except in my family. Uh, you just sort of grab crayons out of a bag, uh, you get what you get, and then you have five minutes to create a masterpiece. Uh, and this one day, I created clearly what is a masterpiece, right? Um, I would like to say that, you know, art critics in the future 
are going to look back at this time, and they'll say, this is, you know, circa 23, Callaway, his green period. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and this really is an exploration of the strictures of masculinity in a modern patriarchal society. I'm pretty sure that's the interpretation I'll give, or if you are my older daughter who first looked at it, she's like, is that a guy with a mustache? <laughs> yes, this is guy with mustache crayon on paper. Um, and uh, I understand that it's not for everyone, right? I know that my art is a little progressive, a little out there. Um, not everyone can get it. They're just the average person doesn't fully understand. But it was a little disconcerting when my second born, after the first one said guy with mustache, she looks at it and she just goes, I don't get it. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean you don't get it? She's like, I don't see it. I don't, I don't see a guy with mustache. And I'm like, I, what do you mean? She's like, I don't know, like maybe some fried eggs. Uh, maybe, maybe some like trees or something. I don't know. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, here are his eyes. Here are his eyebrows. Here's the handlebar that dad sometimes will wear when he grows his mustache. You're like, what do you mean? And she's like, sorry, dad, I don't get it. Now, you fail a lot as a parent, um, but when, when your own flesh and blood doesn't connect with your artistry, um, this is really defeating on all sorts of levels. And so, in sort of like a, a recognition that I'd failed as a father and as an artist and probably as a human being, I just sort of cast the image across the, the table and it spun around um, and it landed a little bit like this, uh, upside down. And right about then is when my second born stops and goes, oh, now I see it. Dad, it's a guy with mustache. <laughs> I'm like, what? And she's like, why didn't you just turn the picture upside down in the first place? Ah, gotta love kids. Um, that same child, actually, this morning uh, over at Brazil uh, walked in, and we normally drive together, which means we're late. Today, um, we did not, so Dad was on time, and they came in later, and she looks at me, she's very honest, and she's like, that's what you're wearing? <laughs> <sighs> so, uh, that's my second child. Um, why didn't you just turn it upside down in the first place? Um, we all operate in our lives uh, according to a certain set of pictures. Right? Some, some symbols, some metaphors, some images uh, that orient us towards the world. They frame reality for us. And in many cases, that's some, that picture is something we hold in common, right? We, we share a vision of the world. Sometimes we'll even call it a worldview that connects us, that unites us. Other times those pictures, though, uh, shape our vision of the world in ways that actually eliminate things from view. They prevent us from seeing things. They actually set out boundaries where we can determine who is a friend and who is an enemy, who is in, who is out, who is holy, who is unholy. And as we think about um, the series that we're in right now, um, the Be the Difference, uh, we're wrapping it up. Uh, last few weeks, we've been talking about what does it look like for us as disciples of this man, Jesus, to actually do things in the world that produce something, right? That we actually model our life after Jesus. And as we're asking that question, I kind of think that, the, that our collective imagination has been captured by a certain set of pictures that aren't actually doing us a whole lot of good. And sometimes, for the sake of the gospel, we might need to turn those pictures upside down. Because sometimes, as we think about what it means to be the difference, um, we have been uh, sort of handed a set of pictures that leads us in one direction, and I think when we encounter Jesus, we actually see something altogether different. We see a Jesus that challenges our assumptions, that asks us to think differently about how we are viewing the world. 
In more ways than one, um, this is kind of the only thing I've ever known how to do, to be honest with you. Uh, if you uh, look at any of my research or writing, if you've ever heard a sermon I've, I, I preached, this will be an example of one. Um, I've only ever really been able to do that, uh, is to say, okay, let's figure out what is the common assumption that we all think we think, right? Now, I will give you just a little insider uh, trading here. Um, I grew up as a CPK, church planter's kid, right? Not California Pizza Kitchen. Um, and so I've, I've seen it all, and it's pretty interesting. Like, I don't know, what are there, 200 people in this room, 250? Um, it's pretty interesting when you walk in this room, you probably, I'm guessing, assumed that everybody else sitting in this room basically thinks the same thing you do about God, about politics, about, uh, uh, okay, there we go, all right, maybe not, right? Um, but the interesting thing is, is that, that we operate with this assumption that everybody else is operating with the same assumptions as us. We also operate with the assumption that our assumptions are right. <laughs> so I, my only like skill in life is to go in and go, what is that operating assumption that nobody's like critiquing, nobody's questioning, we all just think it's the case. And I just say, for a moment, what would it look like if we turned that upside down? What if we just consider the alternative, even if they're just a second? I know it's totally stupid, and I know it's wrong, and I know it's not what God wants, but just for a second, let's imagine it otherwise and see what might come of it. That's my skill, and I think in part because I'm a second-born. Um, any second-borns? Anybody? Okay, we have a few. There was literally nobody over at Brazil. This was shocking. It, it said a lot about uh, that congregation over there. Um, <laughs> so good, good. I'm now with my kindred spirits, right? Um, so I have an older sister, and I'm second at five, but uh, most of my life I feel like it's just some version of me trying to get a rise out of my older sister, right? Like I'm just sort of poking, like needling her, like, <laughs> what can I do? So some of its personality of going like, oh, you all think this? Well, we'll see if, you know, um, see how this makes you feel, right? Um, and, and that is part of it. Uh, probably the best expression right now of that, uh, you could look at, you know, my past books and stuff, but I have this podcast coming out. This is another shameless plug. Everyone... I'll even allow it if you have your phones. Um, you can get them out and like and subscribe to the new podcast, right? Um, it's called Be Afraid, right? It's with Christianity Today. It's coming out on Friday, our first episode. And here's what it's about. It's about the theological value of the horror genre. Okay. <laughs> uh, I... I understand hearing that. My on its face seems stupid, right, and absurd, and the opposite of what a Christian might be doing, especially a theologian, right? Like, what are you, what are you talking about, horror? Like, how does that have, what, what doth horror have to do with Jerusalem, right? Um, but this is just another example of, of what I tend to do is to say, well, maybe horror isn't awful. I mean, it is awful. Uh, but maybe instead of us saying it's something to be avoided, something to be discarded, something to be critiqued and condemned, it might actually be a place and a space for us to learn something about our own fears and also the fears of the people that we uh, work with, the people that we live with, our friends, our families, the people that are consuming this kind of stuff. So again, it's just me going like the assumption is that the Christian community thinks horror equals bad, and I go, what if horror equals good? Very simple, right? The problem is, um, it's much easier said than done, because if you've ever had uh, vertigo, or if you've ever had like some problem with your vision, or you've ever worn somebody else's glasses, you know that when you mess with the pictures that we operate with, it is very uncomfortable and very disorienting. Sometimes it even induces this sense of like nausea, right? And I, I say that because I want to prepare you 
for the fact that anytime we do this, even though it's my personality, it's actually really, really uncomfortable. Now, there is some good news, and that is you'll get over it. <laughs> and I don't just mean like, oh, I'll get over it. Um, like that guy will stop talking and then we'll go have delicious uh, snacks. Um, what I mean is you will actually adjust. If you've ever uh, read any of the research on like how people do therapies with different vision correction, there's um, <clears throat> some actually technology where if you have some problems with your vision, people will uh, wear glasses that invert their vision. And our vision is amazing. You just research it. It's, I find it fascinating, um, the way that God has created our perceptual capacities. Um, and what happens is, at first, it's really disorienting. You actually see upside down in these, these therapies for, for vision, and a lot of it is actually for vertigo. Um, and after a while, after a few days, you actually adjust. You're still seeing an inverted image, but you can actually, uh, basically your brain flips the image back upside down, right? Right side up. Because it's already what's happening. I don't know if you know this, but we already flip images upside down. We don't see the world right side up. I say all that to say, it is disorienting, it is nauseating, but we actually do adjust if we sit in that discomfort just long enough. So, it may be because I'm second born, but I think actually the reason that I'm prone to this kind of thing is because full confession Anytime I go to this, this little book, um, and especially anytime I read about Jesus, and I sit for a second and actually listen to what he's saying and to who he's saying it, I cannot help but walk away with the pictures and assumptions that I've been operating with completely turned on their head. Every time. I might even say, if you're reading this book and you're encountering this man Jesus and you don't walk away uncomfortable on some level, you're probably not really reading it. Now, does, should we be comforted? Yes. Should we feel good? Yes. Does Jesus love you? Absolutely. But <laughs> part of that love is a love that transforms every single thing about your life, which means every time I go into an encounter with Jesus, I walk away fundamentally changed. And most of my life has been a, a, a challenge, a calling to say, I went and met this man, Jesus, and hey, everybody, have you actually read what this guy says? It's going to turn your pictures upside down. It's going to transform the assumptions that you have everywhere you go, and that is a good thing. It's disorienting, it's nauseating, but you know what? It has completely transformed my life. Anybody know or remember, it's a now classic movie called The Matrix, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, for the older people, uh, uh, that movie is 24 years old now. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Um, so, for the youths, I see that I, you all seem a little bit on the younger side. So, this movie um, starred um, uh, Jack, uh, what's his name? Uh, John Wick, right? So, uh, The Matrix starred John Wick, and John Wick uh, was. <laughs> was in this, uh, this alternative world that was a fake world, and then they had to get him out of that world. And there's this guy, Morpheus, played by oh, the other character in John Wick, actually. Uh, what's his... Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, what is it? Lawrence Fishburne. Oh, Lawrence Fishburne. That's right. Um, who did I just say? Anyway, but he's in John Wick, too, isn't he? Anyway, all right. Uh, forget about John Wick. Uh, we're, we're focused on, on the classic film, The Matrix. Neo goes in. He's in The Matrix. They wake him up, right? And the first thing that he experiences is I'm fully aware of this world, and then I come into this other world, and there's Lawrence Fishburne, Morpheus, saying, like, welcome to the real world. And Neo opens his eyes, and it's this really interesting exchange. The first thing he says is, why do my eyes hurt? 
Anybody remember what Lawrence Fishburne says? Because you've never used them before. Wait, I think that's awesome. Did, are you guys like... <laughs> I, um, I will say, uh, I've used that illustration a couple other times, and there's been no... It's now so old, no one's gotten it right until just now. Well done, well done. Um, yeah, yeah, see? Um, but isn't that fascinating? You've never used them before. This is what I think it means if we're going to be the difference, and we're modeling our lives after this man, Jesus... What we have to come to acknowledge is that when we get our pictures upset and reoriented and disrupted and turned on their head, it's going to hurt. Why? Because we've never used our eyes before. Every single time I meet Jesus, that's why my eyes hurt. That's the invitation for today. As we close out this series, what does it mean for our eyes to hurt after encountering what Jesus is going to say? So we're going to look at Luke 14. If you've got your Bibles, grab those. It'll be up here, but it's kind of small print, actually. Um, and as we read this, I want you to ask three things. Um, one, where does Jesus go? Two, what does Jesus do? And then three, what does Jesus say? Now, we're going to ask those questions as a way uh, of allowing Jesus to turn a, an assumption on our head that has to do with this thing called hospitality, Okay. So if you want to open up Luke 14, we'll start in verse 1. It says, Now one Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a leader of the Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There right in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. So Jesus asked the experts in religious law and the Pharisees, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So Jesus took hold of the man, healed him, and sent him away. Then he said to them, Which of you, if you have a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. But they could not reply to this. Then, when Jesus noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. He said to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor because a person more distinguished than you may have been invited by your host. So the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your place. Then, ashamed, you will begin to move to the, last, uh, to the least important place. But when you are invited, go and take the least important place, so that when your host approaches, he will say to you, friend, move up here to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who share the meal with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you host a dinner or banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors so you can be invited by them in return and get repaid. But when you host an elaborate meal, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, then you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Um, it's partly because of passages like this that we talk a lot about Christian hospitality, right? What it means to be hosts, what it means to be hospitable and, and offer a great banquet, right? But again, if we are trying to say, what does it mean to be the difference? And the way we do that is to model our lives after Jesus. I find it really interesting that Jesus himself wasn't much of a host. In fact, if the gospels are an indication, he didn't host anything at all. <laughs> Just think about his life for a second. From the cradle to the grave, Jesus comes into the world and leaves the world in somebody else's space. 
It's just some random person that his parents find that are like, yeah, you can go be born in this stable, right? It's not their place. They are receiving the generosity of someone else. At the end of his life, he dies and he is buried in somebody else's plot of land. A rich guy that said, oh, I have a place that you can stay. So Jesus literally was born and died on somebody else's space with somebody else's generosity. But then as an adult, right, uh, during his ministry, he is an itinerant preacher, which means he had nothing. He had no resources. He has no place to lay his head, you often hear. So uh, even if he wanted to, he wouldn't have been able to actually host anything at all. He might have been walking around thinking like, God has called me to be the next Martha Stewart of Galilee. Um, Actually, she's probably a bad example now. Uh, uh, Who's the host uh, now? Uh, Oh, the people from Waco. What are they? Um, Yeah, the Magnolia people, right? Like I'm going to be a, oh, Chip, Chip and uh, something, the Gaines. I'm going to be the Gaines, right? See, I'm I'm really hip with the youths. This, this, I'm, I'm reference, referencing these. Joanna, Chip and Joanna Gaines. There it is. Um, I want to be the next uh, Magnolia of Galilee. Even if he'd wanted to, he didn't have the resources, right? He wouldn't, he, it, there's no way for him to actually host. But it wasn't just that, that he didn't lack uh, or he didn't have resources, right? It wasn't that he wanted to be the host with the most, but he wasn't able to because he was a poor itinerant preacher. At times, Jesus just seems completely unconcerned with the idea of hospitality at all. In some cases, if you think about like the wedding at Cana, right, uh, he actively resists being the host. His mom comes to him and is like, Jesus, look, we're out of wine. I need you to do your thing. And he's like, what does he say? It's not my time, woman. Now, listen, uh, I grew up the son of a southern woman and southern grandmother, and they are hosts. My wife is a hostess. And I tell you what, I think Jesus is in like delayed adolescence or something in this passage because you do not tell your mom that, right? (laughs) And he's like, it's not my time. It just seems like somebody that's, you know, uh, in their youth and they're just tired, right? They don't want to do it. Uh, But he's actively resisting any sort of hospitality from from the invitation from his mom. He finally does it, but begrudgingly, right? But then there's other times where his disciples come, right? And you think, oh, you know what? Cutter's wrong. He, he hosts lots of stuff, like feeding the 5,000. That's, that's definitely being hospitable. But if you actually read the text, what's going on in those things? Jesus is just out being Jesus, right? Teaching, doing stuff. He's got his disciples. And then all these people come. He didn't invite them. He didn't announce anything. They all just show up to hear from him. Then his disciples come, and what do they say? Jesus, these people are hungry. <laughs> what are we going to do? And what does Jesus say? What? Yeah, see, I'm going to go to you every time now. <laughs> You got the matrix, and you know the Bible as well as the matrix. That's perfect. Um, Dave is doing good work over here uh, in his teaching. Um, you feed them. Isn't that interesting? The, the host, right? The heavenly host, Jesus here. We have hungry people. His disciples come. Let's feed them. And what does he say? You do it. Then they come back and they're like, well, we can't. We don't have anything. And then what is the solution they come up with? They steal a kid's lunch, right? <laughs> like... I just, I, it's still shocking to me because um, I, I said this in the last service. I'm like, it, it's kind of to be expected. If you got a bunch, if you got like 12 or 13, 30-year-old men together, you wouldn't imagine they're going to start a hospitality company. Right? Like that's not in, in their thing. But still, this is beyond just not great. They're not very good hosts. So he's, he's either denying it, he doesn't want to do it, he's deferring or deflecting. I mean, over and over again, he's actually not doing what we would think you would do if you were hospitable. 
And in this passage in, in Luke 14, um, all of a sudden, he's not only not being hospitable, but he's a guest in somebody's home, and he starts critiquing everybody. He's like, hey, you're a bad host, and hey, you're a bad guest. Like, what is up with Jesus? Now, this doesn't mean that he is anti-hospitality. doesn't mean he's against it. If anything, it's the opposite. What Jesus is doing in his life is he is completely turning our notion of hospitality upside down. He's probably also turning it inside out because that's just very Jesus-y. Instead of serving drinks to people, he goes to the woman at the well and says, will you serve me water? Instead of inviting people over to his house, he goes to Zacchaeus and he says, I'm going to invite myself over to your house. Let's go have a meal. And instead of telling his disciples, you need to be people that uh, create spaces that are hospitable and generous for other people, he says, no, I want you to go to town, to town, to town, and rely on the, and expect it even. Don't just rely, but expect their hospitality. And if they don't give it to you, what do you do? You cast the dust off of your feet. Over and over and over again, we see that Jesus wasn't just not a great host. He may not have even been a good host at all. But that's because he was something else altogether. Jesus was hostable. Now, Colton preached a little bit, oh, there you are, uh, a few weeks ago, and it's one of the passages he, he had, um, this came up. And I can't remember, do you remember what the passage was? And you riffed on, on uh, hostable. Was it the cast the dust off the feet? Yeah. Um, and it was funny. I sort of chuckled too. I didn't think about it. And he's like, you know, maybe it's hostable. And he's like, is that even a word? Uh, I don't think it is, uh, but I've used it, and that's what we're going to go with. Um, what I mean by it is essentially, essentially, are you a good guest? And what would it take to actually be and become a good guest? We don't usually actually think about that, in part because we're not in spaces that demand it of us. So the question I want us to ask is basically, what would it look like if we did what Jesus did? What would it look like where, where you're, from where you're sitting in your life right now? It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be hospitable. It doesn't mean you should be a host. But what would it look like if in your life you decided you were going to be, like Jesus, the best guest ever? I think part of what that entails is going where Jesus goes. So can we put that first slide up? I told you to think, where is it that Jesus goes in this? Um, and normally, uh, I often like to joke I have pointless sermons. Um, because I, I do, I don't really like do one, two, three, and there's like one underlying point, but it's pointless. But I'm going to give you like nine, okay? Um, so I just, I'm just either extreme. It's no point at all, or there's too many. Um, but basically, the question of where does Jesus go, at least in Luke and then elsewhere in, in the Gospels, is he goes wherever he's invited. But strategically, it's not like Cutter. Uh, my strategy is completely dictated by snacks. Um, I, I am very glad to know that over here we're also doing a newcomer's lunch because I was, oh, I was deeply saddened that I had to leave the Brzee campus to come over here uh, when they were having their newcomer's brunch right after I preached. And I'm like walking through the snacks and I'm like, oh. So I am really driven by snacks. If you invite me to something with snacks, I'll show up, okay? Um, that's my strategy, not Jesus' strategy, right? He goes where he's invited, but... These are spaces for him that are public, they are socioeconomically, religiously, and politically plural, 
meaning there are all sorts of different perspectives in the room, all sorts of different pictures that people are operating with, and they're incredibly polarized. We got three Ps there, right? Oh, they're there. There we go. Um, I actually, my ordination is Southern Baptist, so that's why you have three Ps, right? Um, I'm a Southern Baptist preacher. Um, you could also add porous there. So Jesus walks into this space that's incredibly public, incredibly plural, and polarized. And he does it intentionally over and over and over again. Everywhere he goes, he's waking up every day and entering into these spaces that are fraught with tension. We are in a society, I don't need to tell you right now, that is pretty polarized, right? Um, it's nothing compared to this. I have not seen anybody, well, we use the language, right? We like hyperbole. People are crucified, right? If you're canceled, right? Oh, don't, why are you crucifying me? No, no. He was literally crucified. That's how polarized it was. And yet he kept going. That's pretty amazing. He kept going into spaces filled with people that did not agree with him. You've got Pharisees. You've got Sadducees. You've got sick people that are ritually impure. You've got people that have just gone through all of these rituals to make themselves pure. You've got people that aren't even Jewish, right? You've got Roman citizens. You've got all this mix of people and into this kind of like uh, this cauldron of polarity, Jesus walks time and time and time again. And it's pretty interesting to me because I'm getting tired of those kind of contexts. I don't know about you, but um, I, uh, I've been teaching now at Fuller for 13 years, not very long. Um, but even in that short span of time, things have changed. The contract between student and teacher is very different. When I first started, it was like, okay, students show up the first day, and you're the expert. You have something to say. They're paying tuition to learn. And the assumption is we'll trust you, right? We'll trust where you're going to take us, right? And you can, you can uh, break that trust, you can violate it, you can lose it, but it starts with that assumption. That's not the case anymore. Now, at least in a classroom, and if you're a teacher or anywhere in any level of education, I teach grad school, but it's, you know, K through post-grad. Now, the assumption is, I don't trust you. I can't trust you until you prove that you're trustworthy, which means between now and then, any slip, any slight, you know, ah, 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 you all of a sudden are crucified. And it is exhausting. It's exhausting because I don't want to be in fights all the time. I don't know if you got, I mean, some of you probably do like fighting. Um, I know my kids like fighting. They seem to really, really relish that. But um, I just, it exhausts me. And that's because it's exhausting. And yet Jesus went into those spaces over and over and over again. And what's interesting is what happens when you do that, as we're thinking about being the difference, as we think about the spaces that we enter, and what I'm not talking about is social media, okay? Um, social media is neither public nor plural, it's only polarized. Um, I don't know if you know how the algorithms work, but nobody else sees what you see online, on social media. It's not a public space. It's, it's what the algorithm thinks you want and need to see. And it's hyper-customized to you. So it's not a public space and it's not plural because it's not giving you all the perspectives. Actually, even just Google doesn't give you all the, did you know that? Google is, is, is censored, even US Google. You don't see everything that's on the internet. Um, but it's all polarized because it's my little slice of the world and then it's all of the opposite, right? <laughs> and that's why it generates some hit. So I'm not talking about entering those spaces. I'm saying, what does it look like to do what Jesus did and to enter into actual public spaces where there are actual other people that think differently than you 
And what does that do to you? Well, it makes you comfortable with discomfort. Any uh, Peloton fans out there? Any Pel Not fans, any Peloton users. Nobody's a fan of it. Um, if you don't know what a Peloton is, it's this like indoor cycling thing where a bunch of millennials tell you to feel bad about yourself. Um, <laughs> that's how I experience it. <laughs> um, but, but I have learned one thing. They do this uh, one sort of training and um, and it's, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but basically you're like in these long states of above your threshold uh, heart rate. Um, and they keep going, it's about learning how to be comfortable with discomfort. And I'm like, that just doesn't make any sense. And I keep going. But that's what it is. You, you, you enter these uncomfortable spaces. And over time, you learn that that doesn't mean, that's not uh, the reason to leave, right? Discomfort isn't necessarily bad. There are some kind of discomforts that are bad, but a lot of them actually help us grow. And over time, if you go into enough spaces where you are actually uncomfortable, what you learn is, oh, that's just what it means to be in this space. I've been here before. I've recognized this discomfort, and I made it, and something good happened. This is what happens when we go into those kind of spaces. And the question is, are you doing that? Am I doing that? Or are we retreating, pulling back from those public spaces? So where does Jesus go? What does Jesus do once he gets there? It's pretty interesting because if you look at Luke 14, the first thing he notices is that the religious leaders are watching him very carefully. Then he notices how people are choosing places of honor, right? In other words, he reads the room. Jesus has emotional intelligence. Now, if there is one skill set I think all of us can learn, it's emotional intelligence, but especially Christians. Um, my sense is that when it comes to broader society, Christians are experienced as the friend who has no emotional intelligence. Um, we really don't know how to read a room, and in part because we're so used to being in rooms where everything operates according to our cares and concerns. We've never had to worry about what other people think because we assume they all think the same thing as me. They all feel the same way as me. They're all encountering this space in the same way as I am. So I don't even have to, I don't even have to do any work, right? Um, I don't know, just, just for a second, think for a moment of just an actual friend in your life who you might say lacks emotional intelligence. And think about how they are experienced by people, by you, right? Some of those struggles. Um, you may be aware of the, uh, it's sort of like an online thing of, of the office test, the Michael Scott test. Okay, this is another deep cut. Uh, the Office was this show years ago, um, and it featured a man with no emotional intelligence named Michael Scott, and he was the boss. And um, the idea is any organization or business has a Michael Scott, right? Um, and the challenge is, if you don't know immediately who the Michael Scott is in your network, it's probably you. Um, <laughs> so, so um, if you don't, can't name anyone without emotional intelligence, I'm just saying refer to the Michael Scott test, right? Um, and, and I think what's interesting about this is it's not just why would you have emotional intelligence, but Jesus demonstrates this in a way that allows him to ask really good questions. He's always asking rhetorical questions. Um, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Nobody can answer. If you had an ox or a son that fell into a pit, would you help him? Nobody can answer. Now, what's interesting about Jesus is he's asking these questions as a way of inviting conversation and not closing down the argument, but actually inviting people to think and to rethink their assumptions, right? 
These are, this is Jesus' way of leading to hashtag healthy conversations. Is that the right, Dave? Is it healthy? No, uh, something like that. Life-giving? Healing. healing. Oh, God. hashtag healing conversations where all fine books are sold. Um, this is what Jesus is doing. He asks questions that are rooted in his emotional intelligence. He knows how people are thinking and feeling, so he can ask questions that actually give life instead of destroy. Most of the time when we ask rhetorical questions without any sort of sense of getting the emotional read of the room, all we're doing is asserting sort of these tone-deaf assertions, right? And, and if you went and polled, I think, everybody, just people on the street, and you said, I want you to tell me, uh, I'll give you two words of how to describe Christians in the United States. Either A, deeply emotionally intelligent, or B, tone-deaf. I'm not going to answer it for you. Just think about how we are perceived. When we go into these public spaces, are we the kind of guests that are actually just making tone-deaf assertions, or are we reading the room and actually generating some kind of emotional intelligence to invite conversation as opposed to win an argument? It doesn't matter how right you are in those spaces. If you become a bull in a china shop, nobody's ever going to invite you back. Now, this is, gets to the last point, and that is, what does Jesus say? So he goes to these spaces, he asks these questions that are healing, and then he does what he always does, tells parables, tells stories. Um, they call this one, the, the text calls this a parable about the great, this banquet, but it's interesting because he first addresses the guests in the room, and he says to the guests, listen, if you get invited to this banquet, um, and, and I think this parable actually is really just a summary of what I mean by hostable. I think Jesus is telling us here, uh, if you want to go out and be hostable like Jesus wants us to be, just read this parable. So he looks at all the guests that are there, and he says, if you're invited to this banquet, don't go to the place of honor, sit somewhere else. What that means is, this isn't about you. We're super happy you're here. We want you to enjoy yourself. <clears throat> we invited you because you're, you're a special snowflake, right? But <laughs> this isn't all about you. Everything happening isn't supposed to be oriented around your cares and concerns. All the people in this room aren't required to operate according to what you think they should be doing because that's your personal preference. No, go sit in the back of the room, and if you're lucky enough, you might get invited to the front. What does it look like to recognize that everywhere and every space we go is not all about us? That's Jesus' message to the guests. Then he turns to the host, and he says something I think equally interesting. And, and it's probably even more counterintuitive in terms of how Jesus turns things on, on, on its head, which is basically that he cares way more about being hostable than about your skills as a host. According to Jesus, even when you're hosting, it's not about your needs and your preferences. And he looks at the hosts and he says, when you invite people over, don't invite your friends and your brothers. Now, this makes no sense. My brothers uh, can't pay me back or anything. So, you know, rich friends or whatever. Uh, don't invite them because they're going to pay you back. And when that happens, usually, uh, you've probably seen this, it becomes this sort of vicious cycle of virtue signaling, right? I invite you because I'm a good host, and then you invite me, and you pay it back, and then they invite me. And then over time, it gets more and more and more and more narrow in terms of the people that are actually in the room. And all we're doing, we're not demonstrating hospitality, we're just patting ourselves on the back, right? And look at how generous I am. Look at how open my space is. And he says, no, you are actually <laughs> a bad host because you don't know how to be a guest. 
all of the parties you go to are payback for the party you're hosting, which means you're a bad host because you've forgotten what it means to go into somebody's space, to be given, to receive their generosity, and not be able to pay them back. Flipping pictures on their heads. So here's my question. If we look at, I mean, just this is one little passage, but story after story in the Gospels, we see the same theme recurring. In our attempt to be the difference, that's what we've been talking about over the last six weeks. What if we WWJD'd it? <laughs> that's another deep cut. Oh. Now I found the limits of my audience's uh, cultural knowledge, right? What would Jesus do? Uh, we ask that a lot, and it looks to me like Jesus wouldn't spend so much time worrying about how to leverage his resources, how to give in ways that are hospitable, but instead starts with what does it mean to be a good guest? Now, don't get me wrong. Hospitality is super important. Um, it doesn't mean that we're throwing that out the window. The instinct to create hospitable spaces, you, I'm sure there's a bunch of you that are in here. My wife is one of them. She loves, like, it's life-giving for her to be a hostess. That, there's nothing wrong with that. And if anything, the, the, the church, our community specifically, both here in Montrose and over Brazil, we would do well to be more hospitable, right? To open our, our doors up wider, to be more generous in the kind of people that we invite and the way that we love them. That's absolutely true. So don't, don't hear me say that we shouldn't be hospitable. But... When we do that, we have to acknowledge that anytime we're here, literally in this physical building, it's our table. It's our guest list. It's our food selection. Everything operates according to what we want to have happen. And in fact, all of the little like, you know, fights and infighting for, that we have within any congregation, but ours in particular, all kind of have to do with how each of us would prefer things to go, right? <laughs> it's because it's our table. So we can be as hospitable as we want, but we can't get around the fact that it's still our table. It operates according to the things that we want, we desire, and that we care about. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But we can spend so much time and energy on that that we completely forget how to be guests in somebody else's space. It's kind of like this muscle that atrophies, right? Over time, you don't realize how much you are causing damage when you go into these spaces. And you might be inflicting damage on your host, but you might also be inflicting damage on the other guests that are invited there as well. But even deeper, I think what happens if all we do is host and we never put ourselves in a position of being hostable is that we become completely blind to all of the many, 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 many tables that we are never invited to because we're no longer welcome and maybe we never were. If there is a crisis, I, I, my research is generally studying sort of like North American Christianity, and you're all sorts of stuff about the church. But if there is a crisis of the church right now, I think it could be summed up like this. We don't know how unwelcome we actually are. That's the bad news. But Jesus came delivering good news. The good news is that we follow Jesus, who spent his entire life in other people's parties, <laughs> in other people's houses, at other people's places, and being invited and added to other people's guest lists. The good news is that some of us do have resources to be hospitable. Our church does, and we can do that on occasion. 
But in every place and every space we go, the good news of the gospel is we are all called to be hostable in all times and all places. Jesus was able to do that not just because he made killer wine, (laughs) although that probably helped um, just a little bit. He did it because he was an amazing guest. And a guest like that doesn't just bless their host. A guest like that brings health, wholeness, and healing into every space they enter. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for a a Savior who not only comes down and knows us, (laughs) knows everything about what it means to be human, but who also turns around and challenges everything we think we know about what it means to be human. God, I'll confess my own blindness at times, ways that I get set in my ways, that I see the world through a certain set of pictures that, that become the way to see it. And I am so grateful for your son, Jesus, who completely <laughs> transforms my view, not just of myself and of, of, of God and reality, but of my neighbor, of my wife, of my kids, of my coworkers. God, I pray that as we go from this space and we ask what it would mean to be different in the world, that we allow your word, that we allow your life to challenge us, and as disorienting as it is, to lead us into new life, to new relationships, to health, to healing. We love you. We praise you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.